0: Section 29.4, The Cosmic Microwave Background. By the end of this section, you should be able to do four things. 1. Explain why we can observe the afterglow of the hot early universe. 2. Discuss the properties of this afterglow as we see it today, including its average temperature and its size of temperature fluctuations. 3. Describe open, flat, and curved universes, <laughs> and explain which type of universe is supported by observations. And 4. Summarize our current knowledge of the basic properties of the universe, including its age and contents. The description of the first few minutes of the universe is based on theoretical calculations. It's crucial, though, that a scientific theory be testable. What predictions does it make, and do observations show those predictions to be accurate? One success of the theory of the first few minutes of the universe is the correct prediction of the amount of helium in the universe. Yes, Another prediction is that a significant milestone in the history of the universe occurred about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Scientists have directly observed what the universe was like at this early age, and these observations offer some of the strongest support for the Big Bang theory. To find out what that milestone was, let's look at what the theory tells us about what happened during the first few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang. The fusion of helium and lithium was completed when the universe was about four minutes four minutes old. The universe then continued to resemble the interior of a star in some ways for a few hundred thousand years more. It remained hot and opaque, with radiation being scattered from one particle to another. It was still too hot for electrons to settle down and become associated with a particular nucleus. Such free electrons are especially effective at scattering photons, thus ensuring that no radiation ever got far in the early universe without having its path changed. In that way, the universe was like an enormous crowd right after a popular concert. If you get separated from a friend, even if he or she are wearing a flashing button, it's impossible to see them through the dense cloud, uh, crowd. excuse me. Only after the crowd clears is there a path for the light from the button to reach you. When does the universe become transparent? Not until a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, when the temperature had dropped to about 3000 Kelvin and the density of atomic nuclei to about 100 per cubic centimeter, did the electrons and nuclei manage to combine to form stable atoms of hydrogen and helium. With no free electrons to scatter photons, the universe became transparent for the first time in its life. (laughs) That is the first time in cosmic history. From this point on, matter and radiation interacted much less frequently. We say that they decoupled from each other and evolved separately. Suddenly, electromagnetic radiation could really travel, and it has been traveling through the universe ever since. Now let's talk about the discovery of one of my favorite things, and that's the cosmic background radiation. If the model of the universe described in the previous section is correct, then as we look far outward into the universe and thus far back into time, the first afterglow of the hot early universe should still be detectable. Observations of it would be very strong evidence that our theoretical calculations about how the universe evolved are correct. As we'll see, we have indeed detected the radiation emitted at this photon decoupling time when radiation for the first time began to stream freely through the universe without interacting with matter. The detection of this afterglow was initially an accident. In the late 1940s, Ralph Alfer and Robert Herman were working with George Gamow and realized that just before the universe became transparent, it must have been radiating like a black body at a temperature of about 3,000 Kelvin, the temperature at which hydrogen atoms could begin to form. If we could have seen that radiation just after neutral atoms formed, it would have resembled radiation from a reddish star. It was as if a giant fireball filled the whole universe. But that was nearly 14 billion years ago. And in the meantime, the scale of the universe has increased a thousand times. The expansion has increased in the wavelength of the radiation, therefore, by a factor of a thousand. According to Wein's law, which relates wavelengths to temperature, the expansion has correspondingly lowered the temperature by a factor of also a thousand The cosmic background behaves like a black body and should therefore have a spectrum that obeys Wein's Law. Just a note, black body and Wine's Law are some fundamental concepts in physics, and they just deal with things that are hot and emit radiation because they're hot. Alpha and Hermann predicted that the glow from the fireball should now be at radio wavelengths and should resemble the radiation from the black body at a temperature of only a few degrees above absolute zero. Since the fireball was everywhere throughout the universe, the radiation left over from it should also be everywhere. If our eyes were sensitive at radio wavelengths, the whole sky would appear to glow very faintly. However, our eyes can't see at those wavelengths, and at the time, Alfred and Hermann made their prediction, there were no instruments that could detect the glow. Over the years, their prediction was forgotten. In the (laughs) mid-1960s, in Holmdel, New Jersey, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson of AT&T's Bell Laboratories had built a delicate microwave antenna to measure astronomical sources, including supernova remnants like Cassiopeia. They were plagued with some unexpected background noise, just like the faint static on a radio, which they could not get rid of. The puzzling thing about this radiation was that it seemed to be coming from all directions at once. This was very unusual in astronomy. After all, most radiation has a specific direction where it's the strongest. This is the direction of the Sun, or a supernova remnant, or the disk of the Milky Way, for example. Penzias and Wilson at first thought that any radiation appearing to come from all directions must originate from inside their telescope, (laughs) so they took everything apart to look for the source of the noise. They even found that some pigeons had roosted inside the big horn-shaped antenna and left, as Penzias delicately put it, (laughs) a layer of white sticky dielectric substance coating the inside of the antenna. (laughs) However, nothing the scientists did could reduce the background radiation to zero, and they reluctantly came to accept that it must be real and it must be coming from space. Penzias and Wilson were not cosmologists, but as they began to discuss their puzzling discovery with other scientists, they were quickly put in touch with a group of astronomers and physicists at Princeton University, which was a short drive away. These astronomers had, as it happened, been redoing the calculations of Alfred and Herman from the 1940s, and also realized that the radiation from the decoupling time should be detectable as a faint afterglow of radio waves. The different calculations of what was observed of what the observed temperature would be for this cosmic microwave background were uncertain, but all predicted less than 40 Kelvin. Penzias and Wilson found the distribution of intensity at radio wavelengths to correspond to a temperature of 3.5 Kelvin. This is very cold, closer to absolute zero than most other astronomical measurements, and a testament to how much space and the waves within it has stretched. Their measurements have been repeated with better instruments, which give us a reading of 2.73 Kelvin. So Penzias and Wilson came very close. Rounding this value, scientists often refer to a three-degree microwave background. Many other experiments on Earth and in space soon confirmed the discovery by Penzias and Wilson. The radiation was indeed coming from all directions. It was isotropic that is, and it matched the predictions of the Big Bang Theory with remarkable precision. Penzias and Wilson had inadvertently observed the glow from the primeval fireball. They received the Nobel Prize for their work in 1978, and just before his death in 1966, Lemaitre learned that his vanished brilliance had been discovered and confirmed. There's a link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link. It reads, you may enjoy watching Three Degrees, a 26-minute a video from Bell Labs about Penzias yes and Wilson's discovery of the cosmic background radiation with interesting historical footage and <laughs> I'll make a plug. If you want to see something that is totally inappropriate and totally hilarious, then there is a uh, Drunk History on this particular discovery, and it's, it's put on by Comedy Central. And if you Google search Drunk History, a sound in space, it'll take you right to it. So that's totally inappropriate, but it's totally funny. And I encourage you, if you would like to, to watch that. Now let's consider some properties of the cosmic microwave background. One issue that worried astronomers is that Penzias and Wilson were measuring the background radiation filling space through Earth's atmosphere. What if that atmosphere is a source of radio waves or somehow affected their measurements? It would be better to measure something this important from space. The first accurate measurements of the cosmic microwave background, that's abbreviated CMB by the way. We're going to use that Acronym. The first accurate measurements of the CMB were made with a satellite-orbiting Earth named the Cosmic Background Explorer. It was launched by NASA in November 1989. The data it received quickly showed that the CMB closely matches that from expected from a black body with a temperature of 2.73 Kelvin. This is exactly the result expected if the CMB was indeed redshifted radiation emitted by the hot gas that filled all of space shortly after the universe began. The first important conclusion from measurements of the CMB, therefore, is that the universe we have today has indeed evolved from a hot uniform state. This observation also provides direct support for the general idea that we live in an evolving universe, since the universe is cooler today than it was in the beginning. Small differences in the CMB. It was known even before the launch of this telescope that the CMB is extremely isotropic. In fact, its uniformity in every direction is one of the best confirmations of the cosmological principle, which says that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. According to our theories, the temperature, however, could not have been perfectly uniform when the CMB was emitted. After all, the CMB is radiation that was scattered from particles in the universe at the time of decoupling. If the radiation were completely smooth, then all of those particles must have been distributed through space absolutely evenly. Yet, it's those particles that have become galaxies and stars and people like you and I that now inhabit the cosmos. Had the particles been completely smoothly distributed, they could have not formed at all the large-scale structures now present in the universe, the clusters and superclusters of galaxies, etc. The early universe must have had tiny density fluctuations from which such structures could evolve. I love this. <laughs> regions of higher than average density would have had to would have attracted additional matter and eventually grown into the galaxies and clusters that we see today. It turns out that these denser regions would appear to us to be colder spots. That is, they would have had lower than average temperatures. The reason that temperature and density are related can be explained this way. At the time of decoupling, photons in a slightly denser portion of space had to expend some of their energy to escape the gravitational force exerted by the surrounding gas. In losing energy, the photons became slightly colder than the overall average temperature at the time of decoupling. Vice versa, the photons that were located in a slightly less dense portion of space lost less energy upon leaving it than other photons. appearing slightly hotter than average. Therefore, if the seeds of present-day galaxies existed at the time that the CMB was emitted, we should see some slight variations in the CMB temperature as we look at in different directions in the sky. Scientists working with the data from the telescope launched into space to observe the CMB did indeed detect very subtle temperature differences, about one part in 100,000 in the CMB. The regions of lower than average temperature come in a variety of sizes, but even the smallest of the colder areas detected by the telescope is far too large to be the precursor of an individual galaxy, or even a supercluster of galaxies. This is because the telescope instrument had blurry vision. (laughs) In other words, it had poor resolution and could only measure large patches in the sky. We needed instruments with sharper vision, The most detailed measurements of the CMB have been obtained by two satellites launched more recently. The results from the first of these satellites, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, were published in 2003. And in 2015, measurements from the Planck satellite extended these 2003 measurements to an even higher spatial revolution and lower noise. You're gonna like where this leads, I hope, or at least to find it as bizarre as you found everything else so far. (laughs) Theoretical calculations show that the sizes of the hot and cold spots in the CMB depend on the geometry of the universe and hence its total density. It's not at all obvious that it should do so, and it takes some pretty fancy calculations, but to make the connection, but having the dependence is actually really useful. The total density we're discussing here, by the way, includes both the amount of mass in the universe and the mass equivalent of dark energy. That is, we must add together the mass and energy, the ordinary matter, the dark matter, and the dark energy that's speeding up the expansion. To see why this works, remember that um, with his theory of general relativity, Einstein showed that matter can curve space and that the amount of curvature depends on the amount of matter present. Therefore, the total amount of matter in the universe, including dark matter and the equivalent matter contribution by dark energy determines the overall geometry of space. Just like the geometry of space around a black hole has a curvature to it, so the entire universe may have curvature. This is where it's going to get a little bit weird. We're going to look at the possibilities. If the density of matter is higher than the critical density, then there's enough matter to create enough gravitation that the universe will eventually collapse on itself. In such a closed universe, two initially parallel rays of light will eventually meet. And this kind of geometry is referred to as spherical geometry. Okay, so that's one type of geometry that the universe could have. If the density of matter is less than critical, then the universe will expand forever and two initially parallel rays of light will diverge. This is referred to as hyperbolic geometry and you might picture something like a saddle shape. So that's another type of geometry that the universe could have. In a critical-density universe, two parallel rays of light never meet, and the expansion comes to a halt only at some time infinitely far in the future. We refer to this as a flat universe, and it follows the kind of Euclidean geometry, the right angles that you're used to, that you learned in high school, and it applies to this type of universe. So that's one option for the universe. So what is, how does this relate to the CMB? If the density of the universe is equal to the critical density, then the hot and cold spots in the CMB should typically be about a degree in size. If the density is greater than that, the typical sizes will be larger than a degree, and if the universe has a density that's less than the critical, then the structures will appear smaller. In figure 2920, you can see the differences easily. The two recent satellites launched into space to observe the CMB show that the CMB confirmed earlier experiments that we live in a flat critical density universe. Key numbers from an analysis of the Planck data give us the best values currently available for some of the basic properties of the universe. Age of the universe, 13.799 plus or minus 0.038 billion years. (laughs) That means we know the age of the universe to within 38 million years, isn't that fantastic? That's insane. Hubble constant, we believe, is 67.31 plus or minus 0.96 kilometers per second per million parsecs. And in the units that we've been using, that would be 20.65 kilometers per second per million light years. The fraction of the universe's content that's dark energy is 68.5% plus or minus 1.3%. The fraction of the universe's content that is matter is therefore 31.5% plus or minus 1.3%. This is where it's going to get a little bit weird. We're going to look at the possibilities. If the density of matter is higher than the critical density, then there's enough matter to create enough gravitation that the universe will eventually collapse on itself. In such a closed universe, two initially parallel rays of light will eventually meet. And this kind of geometry is referred to as spherical geometry. Okay, so that's one type of geometry that the universe could have. If the density of matter is less than critical, then the universe will expand forever, and two initially parallel rays of light will diverge. This is referred to as hyperbolic geometry, and you might picture something like a saddle shape. So that's another type of geometry that the universe could have. In a critical density universe, two parallel rays of light never meet, and the expansion comes to a halt only at some time infinitely far in the future. We refer to this as a flat universe, and it follows the kind of Euclidean geometry, the right angles that you're used to, that you learned in high school, and it applies to this type of universe. So that's one option for the universe. All right. So what is, how does this relate to the CMB? If the density of the universe is equal to the critical density, then the hot and cold spots in the CMB should typically be about a degree in size. If the density is greater than that, the typical sizes will be larger than a degree, and if the universe has a density that's less than the critical, then the structures will appear smaller. In figure 2920, you can see the differences easily. The two recent satellites launched into space to observe the CMB show that the CMB confirmed earlier experiments that we live in a flat critical density universe. Key numbers from an analysis of the Planck data give us the best values currently available for some of the basic properties of the universe. Age of the universe, 13.799 plus or minus 0.038 billion years. (laughs) That means we know the age of the universe to within 38 million years, isn't that fantastic? That's insane. Hubble constant, we believe, is 67.31 plus or minus 0.96 kilometers per second per million parsecs, and in the units that we've been using, that would be 20.65 kilometers per second per million light years. The fraction of the universe's content that's dark energy is 68.5% plus or minus 1.3%. The fraction of the universe's content that is matter is therefore 31.5% plus or minus 1.3%. Okay, now we know everything about the universe. Story over. End of book. That's it. (laughs) I'm just kidding. There's always more to the story, and that is the beauty of science. Okay, let's talk about the Hubble constant for a moment. The value mentioned is slightly smaller than the value of 70 kilometers per second per million parsecs that we've used earlier in the text, and in fact the value derived from measurements of redshifts is 73 kilometers per second per million parsecs. You might be wondering why there are so many different numbers, and remember this came from the cosmic microwave background, and the 73 actually comes from other measurements, so we're trying to work to resolve this discrepancy. But the fact that the difference between these two independent measurements is so small is actually remarkable. Only a few decades ago, astronomers were arguing about whether the Hubble constant was around 50 kilometers per second per million parsecs or 100 kilometers per second per million parsecs. We have made progress. Analysis of Planck data also shows that ordinary matter, mainly protons and neutrons, makes up 4.9% of the total density. Dark matter plus normal matter add up to 30. One point five percent of the total density, dark energy contributes the remaining 68.5%. The age of the universe at decoupling, that is, when the cosmic microwave background was emitted, was 380,000 years. Perhaps the most surprising result from high-precision measurements is that there were no surprises. The model of cosmology with ordinary matter at about 5%, dark matter at about 25%, and dark energy at about 70% has survived since the late 1990s, when cosmologists were forced in that direction by the supernovae data. In other words, the very strange universe that we have been describing, with only about 5% of its contents being made up of the kinds of matter that we're familiar with here on Earth, really seems to be the universe that we live in. After the CMB was emitted, the universe continued to expand and cool off. By 400 to 500 million years after the Big Bang, the very first stars and galaxies had already formed. Deep in the interiors of stars, matter was reheated, nuclear reactions were ignited, and the more gradual synthesis of the heavier elements that we have discussed throughout this book began. We conclude this quick tour of our model of the early universe with a reminder. You must not think of the Big Bang as a localized explosion in space, like an exploding superstar. There were no boundaries, and there was no single site where the explosion happened. It was an explosion of space, and time, and matter, and energy that happened everywhere in the universe, because there was no universe without the Big Bang. All matter and energy that exists today, including the particles of which you are made, came from the Big Bang as well as all the space that we realize and see. We were and still are in the midst of a big bang. It's all still around us. This is section 29.5, what is the universe really made of? (laughs) And by the end of this section, you should be able to do five things, one, specify what fraction of the density of the universe is contributed by stars and galaxies, and how much ordinary matter, such as hydrogen, helium, and other elements we're familiar with here on Earth, makes up the overall density. That was just one thing. (laughs) Two, describe how ideas about the contents of the universe have changed over the last 50 years. Three, explain why it is so difficult to determine what dark matter really is. Four, explain why dark matter helped galaxies form quickly in the early universe. And five, summarize the evolution of the universe from the time the CMB was emitted to the present day. The model of the universe we described in the previous section is the simplest model that explains the observations. It assumes that general relativity is the correct theory of gravity throughout the universe. With this assumption, the model then accounts for the existence and structure of the CMB, the abundances of light elements deuterium, helium, and lithium and the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. Wow! All the observations to date support the validity of the model, which is referred to as the standard model of cosmology. Figure 29.21 and table 29.2 summarize the current best estimates of the contents of the universe. <laughs> Let's get to it. Luminous matter in stars and galaxies and neutrinos contributes about 1% of the mass required to reach the critical density. Another 4% is mainly in the form of hydrogen and helium in the space between the stars and in intergalactic space. Dark matter accounts for an additional 27% of the critical density. The mass equivalent of dark energy, according to E equals mc squared, then supplies the remaining 68% of the critical density. This information should shock most people. What we're saying is that 95% of the stuff in the universe is made of dark matter and dark energy, stuff that we don't even know really how to talk about or describe. So who says that there aren't big mysteries yet to solve in science? The book refers to another figure that they show, and it's figure 2922. It shows how our ideas of the composition of the universe have changed in just over the past three decades. And they have changed tremendously, where the fraction of ordinary visible matter that we once thought was there is now taken to only a very tiny, tiny sliver just since the 70s. Let's come back to the question of dark matter. Many astronomers find the situation we have described very satisfying. Several independent experiments now agree with the type of universe we live in and on the inventory of what it contains. We seem to be very close to having a cosmological model that explains nearly everything Others, however, are not ready to jump on the bandwagon. They say, show me the remaining part of the universe, that 95 or 96 percent that we can't detect directly. That is, find me some dark matter and dark energy. At first, astronomers thought that dark matter might be hidden in objects that appear dark because they emit no light, for example, black holes, or that are too faint to be observed at large distances, like planets or white dwarfs. However, these objects would be made of ordinary matter, and the deuterium abundance tells us that no more than 5% of the critical density consists of ordinary matter. Another possible form the dark matter can take is some type of elementary particle that we have not yet detected here on Earth, a particle that has a mass and exists in sufficient abundance to contribute 23% of the critical density. Some physicists theories, some physics theories, predict the existence of some particles. One class of these particles has been given the name WIMPs, which stands for Weakly Interacting Massive Particles. Since these particles do not participate in nuclear reactions leading to the production of deuterium, the deuterium abundance puts no limits on how many WIMPs might be in the universe. A number of other exotic particles have also been suggested as prime constituents of dark matter, but we'll confine our discussion to WIMPs as a useful example. And besides, it's just fun to say the word. If a large number of wimps do exist, then some of them should be passing through our physics laboratories or your homes right now. The trick is to catch them. Since, by definition, they only interact weakly and infrequently with other matter, the chances that they will have a measurable effect are quite small. We don't even know the mass of these particles, but various theories suggest that it might be a few to a few hundred times the mass of a proton. If WIMPs are 60 times the mass of the proton, there would be about 10 million of them passing through your outstretched hand every second, <laughs> with absolutely no effect on you. If that seems too mind-boggling, bear in mind that neutrinos interact weakly with ordinary matter, and yet we were able to catch them eventually. Despite the challenges, more than 30 experiments designed to detect WIMPs are in operation or in the planning stages. Predictions on how many times WIMPs might actually collide with the nucleus of an atom in an instrument designed to detect them are in the range of one event per year to one event every ten, no, 1,000 years per kilogram of a detector. The detector must therefore be large. It must also be shielded from radioactivity or other types of particles, such as neutrons passing through it, and hence these detectors are placed in deep mines. The energy imparted to an atomic nucleus in the detector by a collision with a WIMP will be small, so the detector must be cooled to very low temperatures. The WIMP detectors are made out of crystals of germanium, silicon, or xenon. The detectors are cooled to a few thousandth of a degree, very close to absolute zero. And this means that the atoms in the detector are so cold that they are scarcely vibrating at all. If a dark matter particle collides with one of the atoms, and I should say the nucleus of an atom, it will cause the whole crystal to vibrate and the temperature, therefore, to increase ever so slightly. Some other interactions may generate a detectable flash of light. A different kind of search for WIMPs is being conducted at the Large Hadron Collider, LHC, at CERN, Europe's particle physics lab near Geneva, Switzerland. (laughs) I had a student once who visited there and came back and brought me a coffee cup. (laughs) In this experiment, protons collide with enough energy potentially to produce WIMPs. The LHC detectors cannot detect the WIMPs directly, but if WIMPs are produced, then they'll pass through to detectors carrying energy away from them with them. Experimenters will then add up all the energy that they detect as a result of the collisions of protons to determine if any energy is missing and begin the search for where it went and the potential possibility that it went as a WIMP. So far, none of these experiments has detected WIMPs. Will the newer experiments pay off, or will scientists have to search for some other explanation of dark matter? Only time will tell. You're probably wondering, Ellen, how in the world can so many wimps pass through my hand right now and yet we are trying to build things to (laughs) detect them? And that is a great question. One thing that you may know or may not know is that an atom is made primarily of empty space. There's very little to an atom. The nucleus is really tiny, and the distance between the nucleus and any electrons that are orbiting it is is huge compared to the sizes of those things. So a lot of people, when they picture atoms, they picture things like, I don't know, pool balls or something like that, solid structures. And I'll just say that the structures seem relatively big compared to their components, but most of the structures are space. So the wimps, as they pass through, are passing really through a lot of space. You're mostly made of space. And occasionally, very occasionally, very, very occasionally, a WIMP could collide with a a nucleus of an atom, and if it does so, then it could do something to that atom, not to be afraid, probably won't do much at all, but what we're trying to do is build huge detectors and cool them down enough so that if that does happen, then the effect will be felt throughout the whole detector, and they'll say, oh gosh, something just happened, and then we'll say, oh my gosh, we'll emit some light or something to record the event, and we'll say, hey, that may have been a WIMP. (laughs) That's going to be how it will probably work in those particular detectors. On to dark matter and the formation of galaxies. I made video lectures, and I make them for every week, and the ones that I made for last week for Chapter 28 included some of this information. So if you watch the video, then this may be useful. Dark Matter and the Formation of Galaxies As elusive as dark matter may be in the current day universe, galaxies could not have formed quickly without it. Galaxies grew from density fluctuations in the early universe, and some had already formed about 400 to 500 million years after the Big Bang. The observations with newer satellites and other experiments give us information on the size of those density fluctuations. It turns out that the density variations we observe are too small to have formed galaxies so soon after the Big Bang. In the hot early universe, energetic photons collided with hydrogen and helium and kept them moving so rapidly that gravity was still not strong enough to cause the atoms to come together to form galaxies. How can we reconcile this with the fact that galaxies did form and are all around us? Our instruments that measure the CMB give us information about density fluctuations only for ordinary matter, which interacts with radiation. Dark matter, as its name indicates, does not interact with photons at all. Dark matter could have had much greater variations in density and been able to come together to form gravitational traps that could have begun to attract ordinary matter immediately after the universe became transparent. As ordinary matter became increasingly concentrated, it could have turned into galaxies quickly thanks to these dark matter traps. For an analogy, imagine a boulevard with traffic lights every half mile or so. Suppose you're part of a motorcade of cars accompanied by the police who led you past each light, even if it was red. So too, when the early universe was opaque, radiation interacted with ordinary matter, imparting energy to it and carrying it along, sweeping past the concentrations of dark matter. Now, suppose the police leave the motorcade, which then encounters some red lights. The lights act as traffic's Approaching cars now have to stop, and so they bunch up. Likewise, after the early universe became transparent, ordinary matter interacted with radiation only occasionally, and so could fall into the dark matter traps. That's a pretty good analogy. The universe in a nutshell. In the previous sections of this chapter, we traced the evolution of the universe progressively further back in time. Astronomical discovery has followed this path historically as new instruments and new techniques have allowed us to probe ever closer to the beginning of time. Wow! The rate of expansion of the universe was determined from measurements of nearby galaxies. Determinations of the abundances of deuterium, helium, and lithium based on nearby stars and galaxies were used to put limits on how much ordinary matter is in the universe. The motions of stars and galaxies, and of galaxies within clusters of galaxies, could only be explained if there were large quantities of dark matter. Measurements of supernovae that exploded when the universe was about half as old as it is now. indicate that the rate of expansion of the universe has sped up since those explosions occurred. Observations of extremely faint galaxies show that galaxies began to form when the universe was only 400 to 500 million years old, just a little baby. And observations of the CMB confirmed early theories that the universe was initially very hot. But all this moving further and further backward in time might have left you a bit dizzy. So now let's instead show how the universe evolves as time moves forward. The text is going to refer to figure 2924. And I love this figure, and I really encourage you to take a look at it. It's it's a classic, (laughs) it's everywhere, and it's one of my favorites. The caption reads, well, the title is History of the Universe, and the caption reads, This image summarizes the changes that have occurred in the universe during the last 13.8 billion years. Protons, deuterium, helium, and some lithium were produced in the initial fireball. About 380,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe became transparent to electromagnetic radiation for the first time. Kobe WMAP, Planck, and other instruments have been used today to study the radiation that was emitted at that time and is still visible today, the cosmic microwave background. The universe was then dark except for this background radiation until the first stars and galaxies began to form only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Existing space and ground-based telescopes have made substantial progress in studying the subsequent evolution of galaxies. Continuing to the reading, figure 2924, which we just read the caption of, summarizes the entire history of the observable universe from the beginning in a single diagram. The universe was very hot when it began to expand. We have fossil remnants of the very early universe in the form of neutrons, protons, electrons, and neutrinos, and the atomic nuclei that formed when the universe was just three or four minutes minutes old deuterium, helium, and a small amount of lithium. Dark matter also remains, but we do not yet know what form it's in. The universe gradually cooled, and then it was about 380,000 years old and at a temperature of about 3,000 Kelvin and electrons combine with protons to form hydrogen atoms. At this point, as we saw, the universe became transparent to light, and astronomers have detected the cosmic microwave background emitted at this time. The universe still contained no stars or galaxies, and so it entered what astronomers call, (laughs) you'll love this, the Dark Ages, since the stars were not lighting up the darkness. During the next several hundred million years, small fluctuations in the density of the dark matter grew, forming gravitational traps that concentrated the ordinary matter, which began to form galaxies about 400 or 500 million years after the Big Bang. By the time the universe was about a billion years old, it had entered its own renaissance. It was again blazing with radiation, but this time, from newly formed stars, star clusters, and small galaxies. Over the next several billion years, small galaxies merged to form the giants that we see today, clusters and superclusters of galaxies began to grow, and the universe eventually (laughs) began to resemble what we see nearby. During the next 20 years, astronomers plan to build giant new telescopes, both in space and on the ground, to explore even further back in time. In 2021, the James Webb Space Telescope, a 6.5-meter telescope that's the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, will be launched and assembled in space. The predictions are that with this powerful instrument, we should be able to look back far enough to analyze in detail the formation of the first galaxies. This is section 29.6, The Inflationary Universe, and by the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. One, describe two important properties of the universe that the simple Big Bang model can explain. Two, explain why these two characteristics of the universe can be accounted for if there was a period of rapid expansion known as inflation, of the universe just after the Big Bang, and three, name the four forces that control all the physical processes of the universe. Yes. The hot Big Bang model that we've been describing is remarkably successful. It accounts for the expansion of the universe, it explains the observations of the CMB, and it correctly predicts the abundances of the light elements that we see. As it turns out, the model also predicts that there should be exactly three types of neutrinos in nature, and this prediction has been confirmed by experiments with high-energy accelerators. That said, we can't just relax. The standard model of the universe doesn't explain all of the observations we have made about the universe as a whole. You're probably wondering, well, what are some problems with the standard Big Bang model? It seems so successful. There are a number of characteristics of the universe that can only be explained by considering further what may have happened before the emission of the CMB. One problem with the standard Big Bang model is that it doesn't explain why the density of the universe is equal to the critical density. The mass density could have been, after all, so low and the effects of dark energy so high that the expansion would not have, would have been too rapid to form any galaxies at all. <laughs> Alternatively, there could have been so much matter that the universe would have already begun to contract long before now. Why is the universe balanced so precisely on the ninth edge of the critical density? Another puzzle is the remarkable uniformity of the universe. The temperature of the CMB is the same to about one part in 100,000 everywhere we look. This sameness might be expected if all the parts of the visible universe were in contact at some point in time and had the time to come to the same temperature. In the same way, if we put ice into a glass of lukewarm water and wait a while, the ice will melt and the water will cool down until they're at the same temperature. However, if we accept the standard Big Bang model as it is, all parts of the visible universe were not in contact at any point in time, according to that model. And the fastest that information can go from one point to another is the speed of light. So there is a maximum distance that light can have traveled from any point since the time the universe began. This distance is called the point's horizon distance because anything further away is below its horizon, unable to make contact with it. One region of space separated by more than the horizon distance from another has been completely isolated from it through the entire history of the universe. It would be like having pieces of the ice in the lukewarm water that, even though they're really trying, can't actually make contact with the rest of the water and thereby form a better temperature, one that's between the ice and the water. If we measure the CMB in two opposite directions in the sky, we're observing regions that were significantly beyond each other's horizon distance at the time the CMB was emitted. We can see both regions, but they can never have seen each other. Why, then, are their temperatures so precisely the same? According to the standard Big Bang model, they have never been able to exchange information, and there is no reason they should have identical temperatures. It's a little like seeing the clothes that all the students wear at two schools in different parts of the world become identical without the students ever having been in contact or in contact with the same media source. The only explanation we can suggest is simply that the universe somehow started out by being absolutely uniform, which is like saying all the students were born liking the same clothes or only having the same clothes available. Scientists are always uncomfortable, and they must appeal to a special set of initial conditions to account for what they see. The inflationary hypothesis. Some physicists have suggested that these fundamental characteristics of the cosmos, its flatness and uniformity, can be explained if shortly after the Big Bang and before the emission of the CMB, the universe experienced a sudden increase in size. A model universe in which this rapid early expansion occurs is called an inflationary universe. The inflationary universe is identical to the Big Bang universe for all time, just after the first 10 to the minus 30 seconds. Prior to that, the model suggests that there was a brief period of extraordinarily rapid expansion or inflation during which the scale of the universe increased by a factor of 10 to the 50 times more than predicted by the standard Big Bang models. Prior to the end and during the inflation, all the parts of the universe that we can now see were so small and so close to each other that they could exchange information. That is, the horizon distance included all of the universe that we can now observe. Before and during the inflation, there was adequate time for the observable universe to homogenize itself and come to the same temperature. Then, inflation expanded those regions tremendously so that parts of the universe were now beyond each other's horizon. It's as though that tiny universe, which had reached some degree of uniformity, was suddenly blown up like a balloon, and so everywhere in space had that same uniformity. Another appeal of the inflationary model is its prediction that the density of the universe should be exactly equal to the critical density. To see why this is so, remember that the curvature of space-time is intimately linked to the density of matter. If the universe began with some curvature in its space-time, one analogy for it might be akin to <laughs> the skin of a balloon. <laughs> the period of inflation was equivalent to blowing up the balloon to a tremendous size. The universe became so big that from our vantage point, no curvature should be visible. In the same way, Earth's surface is so big that it looks flat to us no matter where we are. Calculations show that a universe with no curvature is one that is at its critical density. Universes with densities either higher or lower than the critical density would show marked curvature, but we saw that the observations of the CMB, which show that the universe has critical density, rule out the possibility that space is significantly curved. Now let's look at the grand unified theories. While inflation is an intriguing idea and widely accepted by researchers, we cannot directly observe events so early in the universe. The conditions at the time of inflation were so extreme that we cannot reproduce them in our laboratories or high-energy accelerators. But scientists have some ideas about what the universe might have been like. These ideas are called grand unified theories, or GUTs, or if you'd rather, guts. (laughs) <laughs> in gut models, the forces that we are familiar with here on Earth, including gravity and electromagnetism, behaved very differently in the extreme conditions of the early universe than they do today. In physical science, the term force is used to describe anything that can change the motion of a particle or a body. One of the remarkable discoveries of modern science is that all known physical processes can be described through the action of just four forces. Now, me, who teaches physics constantly, is going to be very happy to tell you this. Those four forces are gravity, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. Gravity is perhaps the most familiar force, and certainly appears strong if you jump off of a tall building. However, the force of gravity between two elementary particles, say protons, is by far the weakest of the four forces. Electromagnetism, which includes both magnetic and electrical forces, holds atoms together and produces the electromagnetic radiation that we use to study the universe, and it's much stronger. The weak nuclear force is only weak in comparison to its strong cousin, but in In fact, it's much stronger than gravity. Both the weak and strong nuclear forces differ from the first two forces in that they act only over small distances, (laughs) very small distances, those comparable to the size of an atomic nucleus or less. That means if you're not close enough to the thing exerting that force, you're not going to feel it, and that's a tiny distance. The weak force is involved in radioactive decay and in reactions that result in the production of neutrinos. The strong force holds protons and neutrons together in an atomic nucleus. Physicists have wondered why there are four forces in nature. Why not 300, or preferably just one? An important hint comes from the name electromagnetic. For a long time, scientists thought that the forces of electricity and magnetism were separate, but my favorite scientist, James Clerk Maxwell, who was able to unify these forces to show that they are aspects of the same phenomenon. In the same way, many scientists, including Einstein, have wondered if the four forces we now know could also be unified. Physicists have actually developed guts, the grand unified theories, that unify three of the four forces, but not yet gravity. We're trying. <laughs> In these theories, the strong, weak, and electromagnetic forces are not three independent forces, but are instead different manifestations or aspects of what is, in fact, a single force. The theories predict that at high enough temperatures, there would be only one force. At lower temperatures, like the ones in the universe today, however, this single force has changed into three different forces. Just as different gases or liquids freeze at different temperatures, we can say that the different forces froze out of the unified force at different temperatures. Unfortunately, the temperatures at which the three forces acted as one force are so high that they cannot be reached in any laboratory on Earth. Only the early universe, at times prior to 10 to the minus 35ths of a second, (laughs) was hot enough to unify these forces. Many physicists think that gravity was also unified with the other three forces at still higher temperatures, and scientists have tried to develop a theory that combines all four forces. Like I said, we're still trying. For example, in string theory, the point-like particles of matter that we have discussed in this text are replaced with one-dimensional objects called strings. In this theory, infinitesimal strings, which have length but not height or width, are the building blocks used to construct all the forms of matter and energy in the universe. These strings exist not in a one- two- or three-dimensional space, not even in the four-dimensional space-time with which we are now familiar, but in an eleven-dimensional space. The strings vibrate in the various dimensions, and depending on how they vibrate, they are seen in our world as matter or gravity or light. As you can imagine, the mathematics of string theory is very complex, and the theory remains untested by experiments. Even the largest particle accelerators on Earth do not achieve high enough energy to show whether string theory applies in the real world. You're probably thinking, what are you talking about, Ellen? I don't understand anything anymore and that's okay. (laughs) Welcome to the world of cosmology and physics. (laughs) String theory is interesting to scientists because it is currently the only approach that seems to have the potential of combining all four forces to produce what Physicists have termed the theory of everything. Theories of the earliest phases of the universe must take both quantum mechanics and gravity into account. But at the simplest level, gravity and quantum mechanics are incompatible. General relativity, our best theory of gravity, says that the motions of objects can be predicted exactly. Quantum mechanics, on the other hand, says that you can only calculate the probability or chance that an object will do something. <laughs> string theory is an attempt to resolve this paradox. The mathematics that underpins string String theory is elegant and beautiful, but it remains to be seen whether it will make predictions that can be tested by observations and yet to be developed high energy accelerators on Earth or by observations of the universe. I don't mean to laugh so much. This is very beautiful stuff, and I love it dearly. The earliest period in the history of the universe, from time 0 to 10 to the minus 43 second, is called the Planck time. Planck was a scientist, by the way. The universe was unimaginably hot and dense, and theorists believe that this, at this time, quantum effects of gravity dominated the physical interactions. And, as we have just discussed, we have no tested theory of quantum gravity. Inflation is hypothesized to have occurred somewhat later, when the universe was between perhaps 10 to the minus 35, and 10 to the minus 33 second old, and the temperature was 10 raised to the 27 to 10 raised to the 28 Kelvin. That is really tiny, tiny, early, 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 tiny times in the universe and really extreme temperatures. This rapid expansion took place when three forces, electromagnetic, strong, and weak, are thought to have been unified, and this is when the guts, the grand unified theories, are applicable. After inflation, the universe continued to expand, but more slowly and cool. An important milestone was reached when the temperature was down to 10 to the 15. That's one followed by 15 zeros. And the universe was 10 to the negative 10 second old. That's point nine zeros, and then a one second old. Under these conditions, all four forces were separate and distinct. High-energy particle accelerators can achieve similar conditions, and so theories of the history of the universe from this point on have a sound basis in experiments. As yet, we have no direct evidence of what the conditions were during the inflationary epoch, and the ideas presented here are speculative. Researchers are trying to devise some experimental tests. For example, the quantum fluctuations in the very early universe could have caused variations in density and produced gravitational waves that may have left a detectable imprint on the CMB. Detection of such an imprint will require observations with equipment whose sensitivity is improved from what we have today. However, it may provide confirmation that we live in a universe that once experienced a period of rapid inflation. We've had brief discussions of dark matter, inflation, and cosmology, and we've had glimpses of theories and observations that have left us with more questions than they've answered. What is dark matter? What is dark energy? Inflation explains the observations of flatness and uniformity in the universe, but did it actually happen? These ideas are at the forefront of modern science, where progress almost always leads to new puzzles. Good science leads to more questions. More work needs to be done before we can see more clearly. And bear in mind that less than a century has passed since Hubble demonstrated the existence of other galaxies. The quest to understand just how the universe of galaxies came to be will keep us all busy for a very long time. This is section 29.7, the Anthropic Principle, and by the end of this section, you should be able to do one thing, (laughs) name some properties of the universe that, if different, would have precluded the development of humans. Despite our uncertainties, we must admit that the picture we have developed about the evolution of our universe is a remarkable one. With new telescopes, we have begun to collect enough observational evidence that we can describe how the universe evolved from a mere fraction, and a very tiny one at that, of a second after the expansion began. Although this is an impressive achievement, there are still some characteristics about the universe that we cannot explain. And yet, it turns out that if these characteristics were any different, we would not be here to ask about them. Let's look at some of the lucky accidents, beginning with the observation of the cosmic microwave background. Lucky accidents. As we described in this chapter, the CMB is radiation that was emitted when the universe was a few hundred thousand years old. Observations show that the temperature of the radiation varies from one region to another typically by about ten millionths of a degree, and those temperature differences signal small differences in density. But suppose the tiny early fluctuations in density had been much smaller, then calculations show that the pool of gravity near them would have been so small that no galaxies would have ever formed. What if the fluctuations in density had been much larger? Then it's possible that the very dense regions would have condensed, and these simply would have collapsed directly into black holes without ever forming galaxies and stars. Even if galaxies had been able to form in such a universe, space would have been filled with an intense degree of x-rays and gamma rays, and it would have been difficult for life forms to develop and survive. The density of stars within galaxies would be so high that the interactions and collisions among them would be frequent. In such a universe, any planetary systems would rarely survive long for life to to develop. So for us to be here, the density fluctuations needed to be just right, not too big and not too small. Another lucky accident is that the universe is finely balanced between expansion and contraction. It is expanding, but very slowly. If the expansion had been at a much higher rate, all of the matter would have thinned out before galaxies could form. If everything were expanding at a much slower rate, then gravity would have won. <laughs> the expansion would have reversed, and all of the matter would have recollapsed, probably into a black hole again. <laughs> no stars, no planets, no life. The development of life on Earth depends on still luckier coincidences. Had matter and antimatter been present initially in exactly equal proportions, then all matter would have been annihilated and turned into pure energy. We owe our existence to the fact that there was slightly more matter than antimatter. After most of the matter made contact with an equal amount of antimatter turning into energy a small amount of additional matter must have been present and we are all descendants of that bit of unbalanced matter. If nuclear fusion reactions occurred at a somewhat faster rate than they actually do, then at the time of the initial fireball, all of the matter would have been converted from hydrogen into helium into carbon and all the way into iron, the most stable nucleus. That would mean that no stars would have formed, since the existence of stars depends on there being enough light elements that can undergo fusion in the main sequence stage and make the stars shine. In addition, the structure of atomic nuclei had to be just right to make it possible for three helium atoms to come together easily to fuse carbon, which is the basis of life. If the triple alpha process that let these three helium atoms form carbon was too unlikely, then not enough carbon would have formed to lead to biology as we know it. At the same time, it had to be hard enough to fuse carbon into oxygen that a large amount of carbon survived for billions of years. There are additional factors that have contributed to life like us being possible. Neutrinos have to interact with matter at just the right, albeit infrequent, rate. Supernova explosions occur when neutrinos escape from the cores of collapsing stars, deposit some of their energy into the surrounding stellar envelope, and cause it to blow out away into space. The heavy elements that are ejected in such explosions are essential ingredients of life here on Earth. If neutrinos did not interact with matter at all, they would escape from their cores of collapsing stars without causing the explosion. If neutrinos interacted strongly with matter, they would remain trapped in the stellar core. In either case, the heavy elements would remain locked up inside the collapsing star. If gravity were a much stronger force than it is, stars could form with much smaller masses and their lifetimes would be measured in years (laughs) rather than billions of years. Chemical processes, on the other hand, would not be sped up if gravity were a stronger force, and so there would be no time for life to develop while stars were so short-lived. Even if life did develop on a stronger gravity universe, life forms would have been tiny or they couldn't stand up and move around. <laughs> what had to be, had to be. In summary, we see that a specific set of rules and conditions in the universe has allowed the complexity and life on Earth to develop. As yet, we have no theory to explain why this right set of conditions occurred. For this reason, Many scientists are beginning to accept the idea that we call the Anthropic Principle, namely that the physical laws we observe must be what they are precisely because these are the only laws that allow for the existence of humans. Some scientists speculate that our universe is but one of countless universes, each with a different set of physical laws, an idea that is sometimes referred to as the multiverse. Some of those universes might, still, might be stillborn, collapsing before any structure forms. Others may expand so quickly that they remain essentially featureless with no stars and galaxies. In other words, there may be a much larger multiverse that contains our own universe and many other stars. This multiverse, existing perhaps in more dimensions than we can become aware of, is infinite and eternal. It generates many, many inflating regions, each of which evolves into a separate universe, which may be completely unlike any of the other separate universes. Our universe is then the way it is because it is the only way it could be and have humans like ourselves in it to discover its properties and ask such questions. We've reached a link to learning box that reads view the 2011 introductory talk on the multiverse and cosmic inflation by Dr. Anthony Aguirre of the University of California, part of the Silicon Valley astronomy lecture series. And as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It's difficult to know how to test these ideas since we can never make contact with any other universe, at least we don't think we can. For most scientists, our discussion in this section borders on the philosophical and metaphysical. Perhaps in the future, our understanding of physics will develop to a point that we can know why the gravitational constant is what it is, why the universe is expanding at exactly the rate it is, and why all the other lucky accidents happened, why they were inevitable and could be no other way. Then this anthropic idea would no longer be necessary. No one knows, however, whether we will ever have an explanation for why this universe works the way it does. We've come a long way in our voyage through the universe. We've learned a remarkable amount about how and when the cosmos came to be, but the question of why the universe is the way it is remains as elusive as ever. We have reached the summary for chapter 29. 29 29.1 The Age of the Universe Cosmology is the study and the organization and evolution of the universe. The universe is expanding, and this is one of the key observational starting points for modern cosmological theories. Modern observations show that the rate of expansion has not been constant throughout the life of the universe. Initially, when galaxies were close together, the effects of gravity were stronger than the effects of dark energy, and the expansion rate gradually slowed. As galaxies moved further apart, the influence of gravity on the expansion rate weakened. Measurements of distant supernovae showed that when the universe was about half its current age, dark energy began to dominate the rate of expansion and caused it to speed up. In order to estimate the age of the universe, we must allow for changes in the rate of expansion. After allowing for these effects, astronomers estimate that all the matter within the observable universe was concentrated in an extremely small volume 13.8 billion years ago, a time we call the Big Bang. 29.2 A model of the universe. For describing the large-scale properties of the universe, a model that is isotropic, meaning the same in every direction, and homogeneous, meaning the same in every volume, is a pretty good approximation of reality. The universe is expanding, which means that the universe undergoes a change in scale with time. Space stretches and distances grow larger by the same factor everywhere at a given time. Observations show that the mass density of the universe is less than the critical density. In other words, there is not enough matter in the universe to stop the expansion. With the discovery of dark energy, which is accelerating the rate of expansion, the observational evidence is strong that the universe will expand forever. Observations agree that the expansion started about 13.8 billion years ago. 29.3, the beginning of the universe. Le Alpher and Gamow first worked out the ideas that are today called the Big Bang Theory. (laughs) The universe cools as it expands. The energy of photons is determined by their temperature, and calculations show that in the hot early universe, photons had so much energy that when they collided with one another, they produced material particles. As the universe expanded and cooled, protons and neutrons formed first. Then came electrons and positrons. Next, fusion reactions produced deuterium, helium, and lithium nuclei. Measurements of the deuterium abundance in today's universe show that the total amount of ordinary matter in the universe is only about 5% of the critical density. 29.4, the cosmic microwave backgrounds, the CMB. When the universe became cool enough to form neutral hydrogen atoms, the universe became transparent to radiation. Scientists have detected the CMB radiation from this time during the hot early universe. Measurements with better satellites show that the CMB acts like a black body with a temperature of 2.73 Kelvin. Tiny fluctuations in the CMB show us the seeds of large-scale structures in the universe. Detailed measurements of these fluctuations show that we actually live in a critical-density universe, and that the critical density is composed of 31% matter, including dark matter, and 69% dark energy. Ordinary matter, the kinds of elementary particles we find on Earth, make up only about 5% of the critical density. CMB measurements also indicate that the universe is, again, 13.8 billion years old. 29.5. What is the universe really made of? 27% of the critical density of the universe is composed of dark matter. To explain so much dark matter, some physics theories predict that additional types of particles should exist. One type has been given the name WIMPS, which stands for Weakly Interacting (laughs) Massive Particles, and scientists are now conducting experiments to try to detect them in the laboratory. Dark matter plays an essential role in forming galaxies, since, by definition, these particles interact only very weakly, if at all, with radiation, they could have congregated while the universe was still very hot and filled with radiation. They would thus have formed gravitational traps that quickly attracted and concentrated ordinary matter after the universe became transparent, and matter and radiation decoupled. This rapid concentration of matter enabled galaxies to form by the time the universe was only 400 to 500 million years old. 29.6 The Inflationary Universe The Big Bang model does not explain why the CMB has the same temperature in all directions. Neither does it explain why the density of the universe is so close to the critical density. These observations can be explained if the universe experienced a period of rapid expansion, which scientists call inflation, about 10 to the negative 35 second after the Big Bang. New grand unified theories, GUTs, or if you'd rather, GUTs, are being developed to describe physical processes in the universe before and at the time the inflation occurred. 29.7 The Anthropic Principle Recently, many cosmologists have noted that the existence of humans depends on the fact that many properties of the universe, the size of density fluctuations in the early universe, the strength of gravity, the structure of atoms, were just right. The idea that physical laws must be the way they are because otherwise we could not be here to measure them is called the anthropic principle. Some scientists speculate that there may be a multiverse of universes in which ours is just one. This is the end of the reading for chapter 29. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the content and that it bent your minds like mass bins, space time, yet again, and I hope that it brought some new insights. And perhaps now you realize that the Big Bang doesn't describe how or why the universe began. It describes what happened after the initial moments that the universe began. It describes how it's evolved since. <laughs> and I hope that the lucky accidents that have been mentioned have you finding more meaning in this existence as you go out through throughout your life. Maybe it's a more meaningful life at this point, as it is for me. And I hope that you continue pondering the deep questions about dark matter and dark energy and what is the fate of our universe and what do I do with this moment I have in our universe. (laughs) And I hope that you share all of this information with people around you. I'm looking forward to talking with you about life in the universe in the next and last chapter of this text. Until then, keep smiling and pondering the mysteries of the universe.